I imagine that every here loves some sort of sport. Whether it's it's football, the the this here kind or or real American football, um, rugby or tennis or otherwise, I'm I'm guessing almost all of you are invested in some sort of sport. And that usually means that you have some specific team for which you cheer. And don't, don't we just get really in to those big matches, the important ones? We focus on those significant events where scores are kept and someone comes out the ultimate victor. And yet, we often forget how much work goes into those matches before they even start. Players labor extensively to get into condition to play their best so that they can succeed when the time comes to play. And coaches work in building right habits and skills into their players. And we see something similar in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-5. We find a situation where a time of trial has come upon the Christians in Thessalonica. And Paul explained to them that, yes, this is a moment of difficulty, but this is why the men who had planted this church had invested so much in them already, so that they would be prepared when this time came and be able to tackle it with skill when it arrived. In other words, so right here, we find a rationale for ongoing pastoral work. I hope that makes sense and we'll get into it though in more detail. And so, so just to frame what we're doing tonight, so we're working through First Thessalonians, as you might guess if you're visiting. So, and we're in chapter 3 now, but the Apostle Paul, to give you some background, founded this church in Thessalonica, but he had to leave really quickly because his presence was causing legal trouble for the new Christians. Now, good reports came back to Paul about these new Christians over the next months, but Paul was, was still anxious to check on them personally. And so he wrote this letter to encourage them during their times of trial. And so to catch us up where we are in the book, in chapter 1, Paul reassured them that he was convinced they were among God's elect because they had responded to the gospel in faith. And then in chapter 2, Paul, we see that Paul deeply desired to be with them, to see them, namely, because they were his prized work, and he longed to ensure that they would endure in faith. And now we come to chapter 3, which is all about how Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica and the report that Timothy brought back. And this section here in verses 1 to 5 is about the reason why Paul sent Timothy to visit the Thessalonians. And so he was he's providing an explanation why Timothy came. And so the main point is that pastoral work 
is God's solution for our ongoing end times trial. Pastoral work is God's solution for our ongoing end times trials. We'll see this in three points. The predicament, the prescription, and the prospection. So first, the predicament. I, I would guess that it's clear to just about everybody here, even from a cursory reading of these verses, that something really important is at stake. We can tell just by the sort of pace and language Paul is using here. He was concerned about the church's ability to continue in faith. And now, here's the thing, is that what you may not have noticed is how Paul's reaction to, to fear, to the fear that their faith might be failing, his reaction to that is the desire to be with them. Do you see that? I mean, it, it, it's obvious once I point it out, but I don't think we gather that on the face of it. And so we need to think about how our presence with one another as Christians is meant to help us persevere in the Christian life. We can't do it by ourselves. And we see that really spelled out in this text. And so in this point, I want to outline this passage, sort of point to its logic so that we can move on in the later points to apply it. And so we should first see how Paul, see that Paul has a desire to have a pastoral presence with the Thessalonians. Read with me again verses 1 to 3, if you will. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Okay, so there are a few things worth mentioning uh, that point to Paul's intense affection for his fellow Christians. First, his view on sending Timothy tells us something about how deeply Paul cares for fellow believers. Because notice this. This is, this is sort of minute, but I, th- I think you'll get it once I point it out. Notice how Paul said, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Do you, do you see what's up there? So, so he sent Timothy to Thessalonica. And the obvious question that comes out of this phrase is if Paul is with other people, we, plural, were willing... How can he say that they were left alone? And the answer is that Paul felt any removal from his Christian brethren was deeply heart-wrenching. So earlier, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, we started there, if you cast your eyes there, that they had been torn away from the Thessalonians. Now, we, we shouldn't always make too much out of how words change from one language to another. Sometimes that's coincidence. But it's interesting here that we get our English word orphan 
from the Greek word here that's translated torn away. I mean, it sounds like the word orphan. And so if we were to rephrase 2.17 in more emotionally loaded terms then, Paul said, we were orphaned from you, brothers, which shows us how Paul so strongly feels his link with other Christians. So when Paul and Silas sent Timothy to Thessalonica, their bond with Timothy was so deep that they were left alone together because their brother had to travel elsewhere. I think about, so then with me, about those first words in 3 verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, Paul, Paul referred here, as he had explained in 2.17 to 20, that he had endeavored to visit them and had been repeatedly prevented from being able to come by the devil. And we've got to remember, we've got to keep it in mind that this took place long, way long before text messages, email, phone calls, and even an organized postal service. And so, I mean, there were no official lines of communication between Paul and the Thessalonian Christians. And so, I mean, that shows us how Paul suffered that disconnect. There wasn't an insured way that he could have contact with them. So, I mean, sort of fill this out a little more in terms of our... So Sarah and I are able to stay in regular contact with our family, even in America, because an iPhone makes international texting and calling easy and even free, which is amazing. And so for us, you know, missing family is really just a matter of wishing we could share their presence, but it's not a total disconnect from all contact with them. Paul, though, Paul had no way to know exactly what was happening to the Thessalonians, but really longed to know they were persevering. And so he resolved to Timothy because he could no longer stand not to have real insight into their lives. He, he knew, he had known that oppression would come. And in the second half of verse 3, he told us, why he was so concerned as to send Timothy. And we read there, for or because you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Trial of some sort was inevitable for these Christians and for us. Trial of some sort. As Paul apparently had told them, repeatedly when he was with them. And now he figured it had arrived and desired to know how their faith was enduring. The predicament, therefore, was Paul was that Paul knew his fellow Christians were struggling and he couldn't be with them. The predicament was that Paul could not get direct access to the Thessalonians 
to pastor them. Which brings us to our second point. The prescription. So we've seen Paul faced the problem of having a deep longing to know how the Thessalonians were enduring in faith. His final response was to send Timothy to visit the Thessalonians so that he could hear back about how they were doing from his trusted pastoral companion. And what we need to point out here is that this indicates a fundamental desire to have some sort of presence among them to help develop their spiritual good. So in other words, what we see here is Paul's awareness that they need ongoing pastoral care. Now, so if we were to read the book of Acts merely, so I'm underlining merely, in a cursory fashion, we might get the impression that Paul was really about trying to get some people saved in each town and then moving on to a new place in hopes of seeing more come to salvation. And so we might think of Paul as some sort of itinerant, traveling, revivalist preacher, parachuting in, preaching enough to see some conversions, and then moseying along to the next town where he starts over. I mean, Paul, obviously, Paul was certainly concerned about seeing people saved from God's coming wrath. I'm not trying to downplay that. But we also see from a good reading of Acts, and especially Paul's letters, that Paul was deeply concerned about the ongoing pastoral needs of his churches. We we see throughout the book of Acts that he returns on later journeys to strengthen the churches. We see from all his letters that Paul has a lasting interest in all the churches he planted to make sure they were developing and progressing in their faith. In other words, then, even though Paul was a traveling missionary, he really was a pastor and was genuinely invested in making sure each church received ongoing pastoral care. And this points us to a really obvious implication of this text, doesn't it? That, that Christians need ongoing pastoral care in our lives. And this raises, though, a question for us that should help us gauge our spiritual temperature. And so how... Here, here's the question... How do you feel about pastoral care? Let's be more specific. What is your reaction to the elders of this church asking you real specific questions about your life to see what your spiritual condition is? Let's Let's be really pointed about this. I mean... This is the evening service. We can do this. So do you spurn the prospect of people actually making an assessment of your life with the prospect of daring to give you advice about being a Christian? It's 
should be clear enough I'm after the issue of pride here. But this sort of pride that thinks we don't need spiritual guidance reveals a deeper sort of sin too. Far too, I mean, gosh, this. Far too many people today protect their freedom to nourish their pet sin by saying their relationship with Jesus is far too personal and private to share with anyone else. Get out of my faith. That's the closest thing to my heart. And what they mean is, you might find out the stuff I don't want you to find out and then I can't do it anymore. If we are prideful in this way, that spurns spiritual guidance from those ordained by Christ's church as shepherds, I mean, it just further shows that our attention is not really on pursuing God, but on feeling good about ourselves. So when when I was in university, um, and I first became really serious about my faith, one of the things I did as part of the campus ministry in which I was involved was invite people to go on these discipleship retreats of various lengths. And one of the common responses that I got was, I just think I'm right where I need to be in my relationship with God. Meaning, it's not worth going and hearing from other people about how to live the Christian life. And in my zeal for my new level of commitment to Christ, I would usually respond directly, but I guess recklessly, Uh, that thinking you're just where you need to be in your relationship with God is the best sign that you're not where you need to be in your relationship with God. Despite, right, okay, despite perhaps the unwise way of stating things so bluntly, which I'm still trying to outgrow, um, I think the point itself is true enough. Even if there are more winsome ways to express that. If we despise the idea of someone having spiritual authority over us and actually having to be open and accountable to them, even in their advice, then it reveals a really deep root of pride and resistance against the exact means. Pay attention to this. It also reveals resistance against the exact means God has provided to spur us forward in holiness. We're resisting the exact thing that will help us outgrow these sins. I, I know, I'm, well, I imagine that some of you at least are already getting a little bit prickly about this. And the most obvious objection is the examples of people abusing spiritual authority to exercise undue control in people's lives. And, I mean, I, I hope, though. I really, I think it should be fairly clear that I'm not talking about pastors and elders dictating every detail of your life. That's, that's not what I'm after. I'm asking you how you respond when your elders point out an issue in your life that needs work. Or, or even just make suggestions about how to grow, even if things are going well. 
And so if you, if you bristle about the notion of spiritual authority or correction, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your pride and seek the face of God for humility. Because God cares about your holiness. I mean, it's really important. It's crucial. God cares about your holiness and has instituted pastoral care. I mean, do, do you get that? God commissioned pastoral care as a way to further your holiness? And so the prescription, therefore, is ongoing pastoral ministry with more or less direct involvement in the life of every Christian believer. And that brings us to our third point, the prospection. So in the first point, we, we saw how Paul, Paul found it to be a distressing problem that he could not be with the young Thessalonian Christians to ensure their development in faith during trials. And then in the second point, we probed into how God prescribed pastoral care for his church and thought about some of the sinful tendencies that this prescription could expose in us. And here I want to consider what the good news is from this prescription of pastoral care. And so, so what, are, what is the hope? What's the good prospect, prospection, and hope do we see in the continual care of souls? I mean, because let's be honest, real pastoral care has the potential to be tough for us in a few ways. I mean, does it not? First, I mean, it's just really difficult for everyone. I mean, no matter what's going on, to admit our faults and our insecurities to other people. We just don't like that. And to some degree, that's normal how we're built, uh, at least this side of the fall. But if your pastor comes to, to see you, I think our natural inclination is to bury our problems. No matter how confident we are, it's not naturally easy to be vulnerable. We want to seem put together. And I think the reason that we want to seem put together is so that we can feel put together. But let's frame this notion in light of the opening metaphor of sports practice in preparation for the, for the big match. Is that practice most effective? I mean, so, well, all right. So I'm just going to say, I'm not going to ask. <laughs> that practice is most effective when coaches just identify and mark the weakest spots in our performance and work with their players to improve them. That's, that's the whole premise. Somebody who sees what's going on says that needs work. It doesn't necessarily mean it's detrimental but that needs work, and points it out. And, and the point is, we, we have to start thinking this way, if we don't already, about the Christian life. Maybe, maybe we're not enduring 
a massive struggle at this moment, like the Thessalonians were. But Paul and Jesus and the rest of Scripture repeat throughout that trial of some sort will come. And we've got to work together in light of that. We have to take careful account of ourselves and dig for what issues we need to address. And so pastoral visits don't entail an impending act of church discipline. It doesn't have to mean that. And most often, I don't think it does, as we see in our text here in Thessalonians. Your pastors and elders love you. And, and we are genuinely interested in your lives and how your faith is growing. We care to be around you. Which is why we have given ourselves to this vocation, be it as teaching or ruling elders. And when we gather with you, it's because we want to make sure, as Paul wanted to make sure, that you're equipped for the hurdles you will face in the Christian life. Paul's solution to knowing the Thessalonians needed to be built up to endure through their trial was to send a pastor. And this this example of Paul's concern to be invested in the ongoing development of the Thessalonians' faith points us to the New Testament emphasis on the importance of your personal holiness. Now, okay, I'm going to step back. I know I've, I've, I've beat that drum. The foundation of salvation is, of course, Jesus Christ and His work alone. When you have faith in Christ, your justification is sealed. It's certain. It's final. Done. End of story. And you stand eternally accepted in God's sight. There should be no doubt that your good works play no part, zero part, in making God love you or in causing Him to deliver you into His kingdom. Absolutely none. Salvation is by grace alone. But although God saves you as you are, Without regard for your goodness, God does not leave you as you are. And he begins to develop in you personal holiness as a path of the Christian life. God God is abundantly concerned to see his people develop in the character and practice of godliness. And so we read those passages. So here's where Genesis comes in. We read these passages about Abraham and how God called him, chapter 12, Saved him, offered him promises, justified him by faith. Chapter 15. And then, after, so I'm trying to make the point of the priority of grace. And then in chapter 17, commissioned him to walk blamelessly before me. And there's a, I mean, there is a real reason for that progression. Yet, this holiness which is essential, doesn't come magically. 
or through disconnection from the world. God does not work ethereally like a a mystic shaman. God is at work concursively in you through the contributions to your life through the concrete, specific, earthly, historical, yes, even outward and external ministry of the church. He instituted a church. Christ founded a church because we don't grow in faith by accident. God places us in a community because it is through the communion of saints that God most concentratedly sanctifies us. The church is like a bag of rocks with sharp edges. The more you shake them together, the more those sharp edges get knocked off and smoothed out. And so God saves us into a family. And so we submit ourselves to the ministry of the church, the continual exposure to the ordinary means of grace in word and sacrament and the ongoing work of pastoral care because because we anticipate the holiness God will give to us through those means. And yet we strive. We stri- I mean, that's, that's the concern here, right? In this passage, you, you get that. That making sure these people are enduring in faith and pursuit of holiness, that's why this passage had to be written. I hope you, you see that. And so yet we strive towards holiness because we know that Christ is returning for us. One of those themes that keep popping up in this book. Christ will come back at the end of days. And so we pursue Christ's likeness, although we will remain far from perfect. I mean, that's, that is the case. And that's, that's how it is. Although we remain far from perfect, we strive to be less distant from that glorified state when Christ, that Christ will work for us at his return. We wait with anticipation the return of Christ, knowing that he will complete our rescue. And we strive together in community because it's in this communion of saints that we see God's goodness reflected in the gathering of the redeemed under the guidance of pastoral care, pointed back to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.